Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Behind the Curtain, a special series of Twins Talk Theater in the Long Beach Playhouse. I'm Sean Gray, the producing artistic director of the Long Beach Playhouse. Cynthia, Stacy, and I are excited to be able to team up to shine a spotlight on some of the talented people that often go unnoticed to an audience. In Behind the Curtain, the twins interview backstage artists, stage managers, designers, and other theater technicians that have helped to create the magic of the shows at the Long Beach Playhouse. They are a wonderful, dynamic, and diverse group of people, and we are proud and excited to highlight their stories and their contributions to one of the oldest continually operating community theaters in California. So enjoy listening, and thank you, Cindy and Stacy, for all the work you do to bring your love of theater to a larger community. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's podcast. This week, we have Dominic Mischler, who is a theater technician, also a playwright and fiction writer. I met him at the Long Beach Playhouse. Oh, I don't even know how many years ago. Uh, every, it all runs together after so many years. Uh, but he's also worked at other places, such as Whittier, and done a couple shows in North Hollywood. So welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Our first question always is, and usually the topic of half of the podcast, how did you get into theater? Um, I probably got into theater when I was in high high school, officially, uh, reading plays. I, I loved... I've always loved to read, and I've always loved stories, and um, they would always publish, like, a play in the back of the book, and I would always read those, and that's when I first discovered probably the best play ever, Trifles by Susan Glassbell, um, which is awesome. I've never and heard of that just, one. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, it, and it's only, like, three or five pages long. It's super short. But it's a super interesting premise where there's been a murder and the women solve the murder, but the men won't listen to them. <laughs> and, and so it's like the women know exactly what happened and how it happened. And they end up actually being able to hide evidence because the men aren't listening. <laughs> and so it, it, it's, like I said, it's a super interesting premise of who and it's a super interest what blew my mind was the use of dialogue and who's talking when and who's listening huh. and uh who dominates a conversation when and so i thought that was i mean that was just like i was like 16 and this was like this is the most amazing thing ever <laughs> and um so i knew i wanted to be i always knew i wanted to be some kind of writer when i was in high school i wanted to be a poet because I think everybody wants to be a poet in high school. <laughs> no, I hate it. Um, <laughs> so then, that's when I, I started looking into to playwriting and I started writing plays in high school and they were really, really, really awful. Um, <laughs> because I went through this phase that like all playwrights go through where you think of it as a movie. And so mm. you write about how in your play things are going to move and... You're moving from one scene to another, and it's all very cinematic. Um, 
then you kind of realize that's not how it works in theater. Yeah. So then, I, you know, when I was 16, I never like done an actual play before. So it's like, I thought this is exactly how it happened. <laughs> or it's like if I had seen, but I mean, like I'd seen plays, but I gone to like the Amundsen on like school field trips. And or you know they have like an outrageous budget and they can do all kinds of cool <laughs> shit and I yeah I thought like every theater could do that um and I, I learned that wasn't true but um so yeah I that's how I really got into it and that's when I became a theater major originally at Syracuse College in 2003 and then I became a double major in theater and English. And, um, yeah, I did almost all of the technical theater classes there. I did makeup, which I did not like. I did costuming. <laughs> um, I got pictures of me somewhere in a Ren Faire outfit because our final project was to make a Ren Faire outfit. Nice. Oh, that's an awesome final project. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was our, that was our, that was our final project. And we went to the Renaissance Fair as a group and. Um, so that was kind of cool. Um, yeah, and I, I really loved backstage. I, I really, that's when I really fell in love with doing backstage stuff. Um, I was prop crew a lot, deck crew a lot. Um, it's like you're part of the show and you're making things happen. And... That's one of the things I like about doing lights is you are part of the production and you are part of the show as it's happening, like in real time. And I finally persuaded them to let me do lights on Greece, which was the musical my last year there. And I wasn't that good at it, but it wasn't that good of production. So that worked. <laughs> you're and in school. Like, you're learning. No, because the thing was, like, our leads didn't like each other. Like, our Sandy oh. and our John Travolta character didn't like each other off stage, so they didn't like each They weren't good enough actors to cover it <laughs> on stage. <laughs> so it's like, this was supposed to be our romantic couple who, you know, kept standing apart from each other. Uh-huh. Yeah, I did a and, Aida like that, and I, would, I didn't realize that they were supposed to be, like, lovers until I read the subtitles, because I was like, they don't ever care about each other. Like, it's obvious they don't really like each other in real life. It was so weird. Oh, well, I, I did a production of um, Line and Winter, which is one of my all-time favorite plays and movies. It's one of the best movies ever. And I did a production of it where Philip and Richard had zero chemistry. <laughs> and so it's like, and they didn't do the kiss either, so it's like, and like one friend of mine, so what did they do? Shake hands? Yeah. <laughs> and so Philip and Richard had zero chemistry. You could hear the audience when they figured out what was happening. <laughs> like you could hear the audience go, oh. They're supposed like, to like each other. They figured it out because they had to work <laughs> at it. Because the, the, the two romantic characters just were not romantic. <laughs> but... um. So yeah, I got into it at Cerritos College, and it was oh, it was wonderful because my life up until then was basically an "It Gets Better" video, and so finding theater was finding a safe and welcoming space for the first time, really. 
And yeah, so that was just, and I had like no social skills and they were very, very helpful with that and very, very nice about that because there were other people who had no social skills either. I feel like a lot of us in theater. Like half of us. Yeah. It's like, as someone who did not have a lot of friends, who did not have a lot of social ability, it was nice to go and be able to like make mistakes in a safe place. That's cool. Um, and also, I was I was the only English major in my calculus class when I was at Cerritos. And I was also, like, the only theater person that did that. that and was so I calculus? remember one summer I was taking... Yeah, I took there was... One summer I was doing trig. And I would be... I was also the person that hung out in the green room all the time. <laughs> and so I'd be doing my homework in the green room. And people would act like it was, like... The plague, like they, they, that, like, <laughs> what are those numbers? Like, like get math on them if they touch it. <laughs> um, see, we would have gotten along because we, Stacy and I, both went through calculus in in high school, and yeah. I was a calculus, not calculus. I was a math major when I first went to college, so like, I'd love math. It was, yeah, but a lot of theater people, a lot of theater people don't. <laughs> and like I said, it, it 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 was just this very odd reaction of like if we touch it, we'll get math on us. And like, yeah, it's funny because um, like when I build things at the playhouse, I'll use math to figure out like the angle and the circle and stuff like that. Yeah. And Sean's like, I ah, just kind of make it up. <laughs> like, but there's equations yeah. for this. <laughs> yeah, and and. There's different kinds of math. Like I'm much, I never really got calculus. I only got a C in it. Yeah. Um, I'm much more of a geometry trick person. Exactly, which is great for theater. Right, and then it's like you try to explain geometry trick versus algebra calculus, and people <laughs> just look at you like you're talking a foreign language. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very true. They just turn off. They're like math. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because oh, I, um, I love to read. I still read. And um, we were doing Guys and Dolls, and I was talking with Jerry Barba. And he asked me what I was reading. I said, oh, I just finished this introduction to mathematics. And they had a chapter on non-Euclidean geometry and what that is and how it works. And you could, like, watch him look more and more afraid. <laughs> <laughs> like, he thought there was going to be a test at the end. <laughs> until, I, until I said, and I just finished Dr. Sleep by Stephen King. And then you can like watch him relax. Okay. Oh, okay. Like, oh, I can talk about Stephen King. I know what that is. <laughs> That's interesting. Even though I like math, I, I don't. I don't read a lot, so reading a book about math sounds very weird. <laughs> but oh, we have a no, cousin a who reads books about who just reads cookbooks. She thinks it's entertaining. Yeah, it it, it can be. Um, yeah. Like I said, I have. I like reading the history of math and science. Hmm. Um, I got several books on like the history of physics or the history of engineering. That makes um, sense. How I mean, the discoveries were made, who made them. Um, I when I was a kid, I used to read biographies of mathematicians. <laughs> I could. I mean, I could um, see myself doing that. Yeah, <laughs> histories and biographies. Yeah. Maybe not yeah. necessarily the theories, and so that that I thought was absolutely I always thought that was absolutely fascinating. I got a a really good biography on the Wright brothers. 
by David McCallum, the guy who did the John Adams biography. I heard that was a really, really good one. I have I've not actually read it, but it is a name I know. Oh, the John Adams biography? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. That is a good one. I really like his Wright Brothers one, too. And it's much shorter. <laughs> right, the John Adams one is pretty long. Yeah, I read that one. I want to say I read that one in high school because that's like where, when it came out, and so everybody was reading it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my in laws had it at their house. Yeah. Yep. No reading for me. I listen to audiobooks. Yeah. It's easier. He also has a really good one Theodore Roosevelt called Mornings on Horseback. Huh. Yeah. See, Twin reads a lot of the the histories of like uh, the royal families of Europe <laughs> and art. Oh, those those are wild. They're know, awesome. They're crazy the ones. best things to listen to. I listen to a lot of just like histories in general of like, listen to a great one on Constantinople the other day of Mehmeto II. Um, the history of the United States as it pertains. To, oh, no, it was um the first two. The first two people who started like the park services who who created the first national park. That was really cool. Oh, a really wow. cool book. Um, yeah, I got a you had just visited of- the parks. So. Yeah, yeah, I got a collection of John Muir's writings somewhere. Yeah, it was John Muir and, and somebody else. Uh, the book was on these two people, and they were friends, but they are also kind of like rivals because they both believed slightly different that one wanted conservation and one wanted whatever the, the other term is, but they were still really good friends. So it was a cool yeah. book. But John Muir's a really interesting guy. Yeah, and he's from California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's from, um, I mean, uh, uh, Stockton, where I went to undergrad, has um, almost all of his original writings. Uh, they are the the keepers of it. So Caitlin, my good friend, is a. I I, I want to say she got like a minor or a second major in something close to that, but I remember she used to go in and like do the research, um, and they would take trips over to Yosemite. And he lived in Merced or Modesto for half of his life. Yeah, and it's really interesting because he did a lot of sketches of what he saw. So mm-hmm. like now we have like images of what it looked like at the time because of him. So it's really cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry to jump back to theater. Oh, <laughs> I'm learning okay. a lot of things. It's exciting to know someone else likes math and uh, actually did calculus in school. Uh, <laughs> not because their dad told them they had to. Do you use, do you use, when you write, do you write about math or the biographies or do you use any of that in your writing or what, what kind of style of writing, not style, but like, what do you usually write about? Um, I definitely use history and biographies. Um, I usually write about, um, LGBT issues, um, I don't. I, did you see this showcase last year that Rick put on? No, I don't think so. Oh, I was gonna say because I, I had a play in that. So. Oh, nice. Um, and so it's it's about which was about two real people, um, Gene Robinson and Ted Haggard. Um, and the play, the never-ending play that I'm working on right now, is, um, about largely about ex-gay ministry in the United States, and that has a lot of real people in it and a lot of history in it. Um, so, yeah, I, do, I definitely do use biographies and history in writing. Um, 
not so much math and science. That's just more of something I like to read about. (laughs) (laughs) Do you do a lot of research when you, because if you're writing a play and it's based on a lot of real people, how much research do you do beforehand or during to try to get it as accurate as possible? Or do you take kind of the basic idea and write more of a fiction loosely based on the people and facts? Um, it, it depends. Um, I, with Gene Robinson and Ted Haggard, I mean, those were two guys that were like in the news at the time. Um, and so a lot of people, especially, you know, cast members that were like in their 50s and older like remember when this was happening and who these guys are and i did like stephen carver told me that you're asking a lot of your audience to sympathize with ted haggard (laughs) um but and so then i did read a lot of news stories and um that was reading like a lot of news stories and reading their own writings and what they were saying about what was happening. Um, because again, these were events people remember because they only happened like 18, 19 years ago. So you can't really go too far afield with that. Wait, I'm looking this up because I don't know. Yeah, I, I was just looking it up story. too. Can you just give us a, a brief okay, rundown um, about what it's about? And Gene Robinson in 2003 was elected the first openly gay bishop of the Anglican Communion. And he was made bishop of New Hampshire. And it ended up, there was a lot of stuff that had been building up to that point. But this was like the flashpoint that set off a lot, especially within the American church. And also internationally, there was a lot of issues internationally, and then bishops from Africa got involved. Um, And several dioceses ended up splitting from the Episcopal Church of the United States. And um, there was stuff that had literally been building since the 70s that this just came out. I mean, it was going to come out, but this was... This was a way for it to. Um, Ted Haggard, three years later, he was a... He was evangelical Christianity in the United States in, in 2006. I mean, he was, the pre- he was literally the president of the Evangelical Christian Association. He was very active in politics, um, especially the George W. Bush campaigns. And then it came out that he had been hiring male sex workers. And then it came out he was buying drugs from his male sex workers. All very, very good religious things. Yeah, and then it came out he had been pressuring men in his congregation for sex. And the church ended up having to pay off people to avoid lawsuits. And it just and it just became this giant clusterfuck. And he ended up in 2006 agreeing to leave his church. And in fact, he left the state of Colorado for several years as well. And so that's the plays about their sort of parallel, but ultimately different lives. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. So you knew the story or you, you knew about them when you decided to write about them or. Oh yeah. I, well, I okay. grew up in the Episcopal church. So I was ah. in like, 
high school first year of college when the Gene Robinson mess happened. And I've always wanted to do something about it. And then a couple of years later, I was when the Ted Haggard thing happened, that was big news at the time. Especially because he had been so vocal against gay marriage. They usually and it, are. And then it, and it, the more I learned about Ted Haggard, the more fascinated I got because he is a very intelligent man. I was obviously a very successful man. And how does someone who is smart and successful so thoroughly destroy their own lives? Like, because he was. I mean, he, he was very successful outside of founding a, a church. Um, he'd written several books on business management and been very successful in that field. He was obviously successful in the evangelical world. Um, so how does how do you get there? It was kind of an interesting... I, I want to say it's almost easier or more likely for people of that nature to get there because they put so much pressure on themselves yeah. to, to uphold this, like, perfect image or this, like that they're a good person image that then it kind of like pushes them over the edge, you know? Yeah. And, and At least that's my feeling that you hear about all the time. Like, Oh, they were such a great person. Well, yeah, but you put that pressure on them and then they went crazy. Like that's what happens when you put that kind of pressure on somebody. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it is kind of interesting. Like how does someone who is so successful and obviously intelligent make such horribly stupid choices? And like, so that and consistently, was, was, like you said, this was going on for years, and then more things kept coming out. Well, it all started coming out at once. Once, um, once one of the sex workers he'd hired come for came forward, then it all starts coming out. Yeah, then, then everybody like, else like oh, jumps on the bandwagon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So it, it was it was fascinating, and um, so now that's part of a larger play that I'm working on, one more collection of plays that I'm working on. And that also involves real people like uh, McCray Game, who was a ex-gay leader who has since come out as gay and left the movement. Um, and so it's so yeah, I use biography and history a lot. Um, I try to research before I write, sometimes I just sort of like stumble on people. Like I kind of stumbled on McCray game when I was researching something else. And then I start going down that rabbit hole and be like, Oh, this is interesting. <laughs> but yeah, I do try to read, especially interviews they give or their own writings because I think that's essential to know what exactly it is that they're saying. And I don't want to sound like a pompous twat. Like, I really don't. But, <laughs> um, I also, when you're writing about people like that, I try so hard to be as non-judgmental as possible. Yeah, because you're trying to tell their story. Because I'm sure what they thought they were doing was right somehow, or most people aren't or trying I mean, to be I mean, assholes. They know what they're, sometimes they know what they're doing is wrong, but... They don't know, but they can't stop. Or um, you listen to McCray game and he feels such guilt about what he did. 
and he talks about that guilt in his interviews, and I thought that was super interesting. Um, also, yeah, just, just because they are real, and or were real, some other people I've written about have since passed, but they were real, and they had thoughts and feelings, and that informed what they did. And then there are some, like, Joseph Nicolosi Sr., who I've been trying to write about for years, but I just can't find a way to get in there, because it, it's he's really hard to research, because you either adored him or hated him, and he didn't really do a whole lot of interviews, and... So he's much harder to write about because it's harder to get into what he's thinking and doing. You mentioned earlier that I guess it was a, the play that you did last year as part of a festival that somebody made a comment about how you are assuming that the audience knows things. How much do you take that into consideration? Do you, when you write, do you try to, do you try to give enough information that somebody who doesn't know anything about these characters, these these people, know? Or do you kind of assume that most of the people coming to your show already have an idea of who these people are? Well, what he said was, I'm I'm asking a lot for them to sympathize with Ted Haggard. Mm. Uh, mm. Because he knew exactly who Ted Haggard was and he hated him. Oh, Because <laughs> there, there are a lot of... of gay people who, who know who Ted Haggard is and really don't like him. Mm-hmm. I, I can see that. Yeah. And even my my mom said it, it's really easy to make him a monster. In, in, mm-hmm. um, I did that for himself. I sort of people know. Um, I never... I just try to tell the story and the characters and... Um, I never really thought about that, actually. <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I am trying to focus on the characters and the story and what I think is important. And, um, yeah, I never really thought about assuming whether people know or not. Because I, I really hope they look at it as characters in a world like any other play. Hmm. I think that kind of brings up the bigger question. I've seen a, a number of shows where I wish I had known more about it going in. Um, yeah. You know, because I feel like I would get a better perspective of it, especially pieces that are based on real life. Or like if I know I'm walking into something that is supposed to be a comedy, I kind of go at it differently than, you know, something that I'm like, oh, I thought this was a tragedy and now I'm laughing and now I don't know if I'm supposed to be laughing. So I guess it's it's a similar thing, you know, if you if you especially if you're looking at these characters from how they're trying to see themselves and not make somebody look like a bad guy, then you are giving the audience enough information. I hope so. To not judge these characters or to reevaluate how they've judged these characters. Yeah, and, and also what you're saying about how not knowing certain places, I think that's where dramaturgy comes in and why we mm. need dramaturgs. Mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to help educate audiences about worlds of the play. Um, and also we need to probably teach plays more in school so people know what they're coming to see. Well, 
I think it also opens people's eyes. Like when I went and saw Come From Away, I knew that it was big. I knew that it had won awards on Broadway. And it's a fascinating story. And Stephen O'Lear got his tickets to it. So we went and saw it. I had no idea. That was as much as I knew. And then watching the play, I was learning so much history about 9-11 and about this city that took in all these people and even the history that why there was an airport there. And then afterwards, I went home and I like did a bunch of research to learn more because I was like, wow, that's I didn't know any of this. This is super cool and opened my eyes to so many new things. So I think that's also like if somebody goes to see your show like me, I wouldn't know anything about these people. Uh, that I would probably afterwards or, you know, intermission be like, oh, now I'm going to research these people. <laughs> what did they look like? And what I, did they I do? What are their stories? Have, have that attitude. I know when I was working at the music center, people did not have that. Or at least the people who came up and complained to us did not have that attitude. Like, what, they wanted everything like fed to them on a platter? Well, or? like we did um, Beauty Queen of Lanan at the Mark Taper. And it was done by a company from Dublin. And people came up and wanted their money back because they couldn't understand the Irish accents. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> and and like, you know, you're, you're coming to see probably the most famous Irish play ever. You can't complain about Irish accents. Um, yeah, so many opera, oh. they, they have to have the words written, even if it's sung in English, because they can't understand it. It's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly. But yeah, it, yeah, I think it helps open people's eyes and be like, I, look, there's an entire world that doesn't revolve around you. <laughs> look at these other people in this other country doing something else or just even in your country. Uh, that's that's what I like to go see shows. I don't want to just see the same comedy over and over. I want to like learn something. Yeah, and I, I think weird. that's part of the power of theaters that you can see people in front of you and it's harder to ignore it when it's literally enacted in front of you. Yeah. You can't pause it or go to the bathroom or turn it off like you can a TV or a movie. Right. I mean, I guess you could get up and walk out, but then everybody's watching you get up and walk out. Oh, I've, yeah. I've been on shows where that happens. <laughs> And they always walk out before, like, the really offensive stuff happens. Right? I'm like, you haven't even gotten to the fun part yet. Sit down. <laughs> yeah. When we were doing, um, was it Disgraced, which is another great play, one of my favorite contemporary plays about the Muslim-American experience. Uh, people were walking out, and it's like, oh, you haven't even gotten to the dinner party yet, honey. Like... <laughs> if you think this is offensive, you should have waited like 20 minutes because then it's going to get seriously offensive. <laughs> then you really might have a reason to complain. But even then, you should you should <laughs> sit through it and learn, even if it makes you uncomfortable. Like, this is happening. Well, again, that's the whole, like, do you educate yourself beforehand? Like, I forget which show I was doing. It was a straight show, I think, which I don't do very many of those. Or maybe it was that I, I don't remember. Anyways, the conversation was, it was during the a production meeting where we were talking with front of house about like what signs you put up in the lobby, you know, for, for a lot of shows yeah. you put up, there's strobe lights, there's a gunshot, there's um, explicit language. Oh, it was for um, Handmaid's Tale. 
and oh. kind of a big one, not a straight. It was a big one, but we were talking about like what is it that we say in the lobby? Like we already said, like we recommend nobody under the age of thirteen. We put that there's I, I forget what else we put that there's strobe light, something else. Violence but we were like, probably. how much stuff do we put in the lobby? Because do we assume that the audience knows what they're getting themselves into when they are buying tickets for Handmaid's Tale? You know, it's a book, but it's also a TV series now. Like, do we assume they know that it's a rather disturbing, a disturbing piece or not? If they've already bought tickets and they they come up and they see something in the lobby, is that going to turn them away? Like, you know, like, what is the point of that? But it's the same thing. If, if you're not doing your research and you show up and then you get mad because it the show you bought tickets for is not something you like. Well, that's your own problem. You bought the tickets for the show. That's not my problem. Yeah, or, you should know what the show's about. Yeah, at the Mark Chamber, when we did uh, Father Comes Home from the Wars, people would leave and be like, "It's I didn't realize it was so long. And it's like... Really? Well, that's what you're mad at? <laughs> you bought the tickets, lady. I don't know what to tell you. And I mean, I'm just here to rent out listening devices and binoculars, so I can't give you your money anyway. Like, <laughs> people just like to complain to whoever is like the first person they see. Usually, it's like the sound engineer in the back who gets to hear all of the crap, and you're like, "I'm just trying to fix the show. I don't have any other any other balls in the game right now." Yeah, it was... it's so funny. People are. I weird. was just the first person they saw in a uniform, usually. So, yeah. So obviously you want to hear their complaints. Does anybody ever come up to you at those points and say like, man, that was a really good show. I loved it. Um, When I was working there, because I, I, haven't, I haven't worked there in a couple of years, but when I was working there, yeah, we had. We did have people that would come up and say that. And that was nice. Good. Nice. If people that were complaining. Really nice. we, we, we really got that during um, Fun Home. People were like really anything. brought into fun home. Um, also, I love that show so much. Nope, no, nothing about it. I'm a really bad theater person. I really don't know um, about anything. It's based on a graphic novel by Alison Bechtel. I like graphic She's novels. She's the Bechtel test. Nope. So, no idea. what's that? Oh, that's the one that um, it comes from her. She used to have a comic strip called Dykes to Watch Out For. <laughs> that sounds excellent. One of the when in one of the episodes, um, they're talking about I only go to see movies where there's two women who have names who talk to each other about something other than a man. And then the punchline <laughs> is I haven't been to a movie since Aliens. <laughs> and it's so, so true because there's like just they test. don't exist. Those kind of people, those kind of movies just don't exist. It's so freaking annoying. Yeah, and so that that was the and then the punchline. I haven't been to the movie since Aliens, and so that became known as the Bechdel test. And I so love, she, I she love wrote that. A, she wrote a book called Fun Home, which was about her father's suicide, and um, and it, be, it was made into a musical. And I was reading this, and I loved the book, and I was like, but I can't picture it as a musical. <laughs> yeah, how do you make a musical about your closeted father's suicide? And it it is it is a wonderful. It, it's not a happy come out of the theater singing musical, mm -mm. but it is a it, it's got some amazing music in it. And um, 
uh, uh, Days and Days and Days is still like the I think the best audition song for a woman. Um, and Telephone Wires always makes me cry. Well, now I'm going to have to listen to that one. Yeah, well, maybe maybe not yeah, the cried one, just the entire the the whole musical. Yeah, watch the musical. It's 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 really good. And but yeah, I remember reading the book and then thinking, how did they? How like how did this happen? <laughs> how did this become a musical? So then you saw the musical, or did you see the yeah. musical? I saw after the musical. after reading the book and knowing her comic strips, and then watching the musical, did you make? Like then, how did you feel? Because if you wondered how they did it, and then you watched it, what oh, they did, you did think? a really good job with it. They they really did. You, like and, the, um, the the way they talked, the way they the tech side of it, just the entire experience. I think they really captured the book in a lot of ways. Hmm. Um, because you have like the more comedic, fun, her falling in love for the first time, but also just her father's decline and his self-hate and how that affects how he treats people and it, it's a fascinating story and idea and I I did love the musical but and there are some like something rotten that is, you know, fun and and has really cool tech and means absolutely nothing. That yeah. was going to be. I like the stuff that is more meaningful, even if it's not happy, cheery. Like I yeah. said earlier, I want to walk out of the theater and like have this desire to go do more research and to learn something. You know, like yeah. I want to go and like engage in the world. I mean, I like singing funny songs, but like I like that intellectual stimulation that I get from a lot of pieces. Yeah, like I said, something rotten when is a lot of fun, and especially if you're into musicals, and especially if you're into Shakespeare, it's a blast. But at the end, it means absolutely nothing. <laughs> and it was, you know, a lot of fun, a lot of cool tech stuff, and people got paid, and <laughs> people had jobs. Sometimes that's the most important. Yeah, and you know, I mean, it's not off. I mean, it's like I said, it's a lot of fun, but it's not. It doesn't touch me the same way something like Fun Home or even Johnny Guitar did. Just it's a fun mm -hmm. music. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be what happens a lot with musicals. Uh, <clears throat> jumping from the writing to you do a lot of tech work. And I know at the Playhouse you've run boards and stage managed. How does that work with your writing when you write do you think about the technical stuff does it cross over do you think like how's a stage manager going to call this cue or how's this scene change going to work <laughs> or don't, um, do you even consider it while writing or is it kind of like separate brains um somewhat consider it just because you kind of like have to but a lot of times i try to write the dialogue in the story and then work it into like a script so that's mm -hmm. the first. Also, I was always told not to add too much directions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I um, prefer that. <laughs> yeah. Because as I was always told, directors just ignore them anyway. Some of them, yeah. <laughs> oh. So, I mean, unless it's really important, we don't add directions. I mean, sometimes I think they are essential. That Oh, no, I mean, they are. 
I guess that they get the story across. Yeah. Um, but I guess not a lot of them. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, just because I remember, and I think every first player I does this, because you're used to seeing published plays that have you know the set plans and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the minute blocking of he picked up a cup, he put down a cup, and so you he try to write dry. that in when you do it, and that's what they're trying to tell you not to do. Right, because those are usually like the first Broadway performance or the first big regional performances. Right. That's where they, oh, right. Yeah, I never... So that's what they're really trying to tell you not to do, but I mean, if it's important to the story, then yeah, I do it. Um, Also, one of the... there's There's a great book that I can't remember the title of about playwriting and one of the tips was write at least one impossible stage direction <laughs> and um why did they say um no just just because no, no yeah just, just because <laughs> but but also to not be trapped by what you think is possible interesting okay. um and there are plays that I've watched where I'm like, you couldn't have written that, like, as that happened. That had to be some vague stage direction. Um, and also because every theater is different. Yes. And so, I mean, even if you say a thrust stage, well, is it a deep thrust stage or a shallow thrust stage? <laughs> and so... Writing in too many directions really limits the kind of theater, and so yeah, it is. I think a more of a separate brain thing. Um, I'm a lot less cinematic, much more aware of must be in one space. I think as you do this more, you get more aware of space and um, movement in space. Um, but specific directions like lights up, lights down. I mean, you can't really do that unless you're Christopher Durang, because otherwise <laughs> no one will listen. Yeah, because that's why you have a lighting designer. Let them figure it out. <laughs> yeah, probably. You know, designers have to do something. Yeah. What about you said you had to think about like different size theaters? Do you ever think? outside of proscenium stage or is a lot of what you do with proscenium stage this just popped in my mind like do you write for proscenium because that's what 90 percent of i guess not even 90 percent anymore because there's so many theaters now that are like in the round or experimental or black box setting um i think my stuff now is a lot more experimental than it used to be like if you would talk to me when i was like in high in college or just starting grad school it would have been much more like face the audience and maybe one side and maybe two sides at once. And now it's, you know, four people on stage at once all having a different conversation. So it's, so it's gone. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's, there's so many stages that aren't foreseen them anymore. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think my shows could be done on those, even if they are foreseen them. Um, you might have to do them more in the apron, but I think it can still be done. So, 
Has it changed your writing style being at the Long Beach Playhouse where you do work on both proscenium and the thrust stage? And so you've kind of gotten used to seeing shows on thrust and working on thrust? Or do you think that has anything to do with the change in your writing style? Oh, my God. I haven't even thought of that. <laughs> um, I think a lot of the change has just become just being more confident as a writer. Um, when I was in college, I was very, I was madly in love with Edward Albee. I had read like all of Edward Albee's plays. And so I was very almost naturalistic and, but vaguely surreal. But, you know, we're all in one room and we're all having a conversation with each other. And there's a very clear goal and very clear relationships and it was all very the plays you read in college and now it's I don't know if it's just because I'm older or just because it's the pandemic but I'm like let's blow this shit up and (laughs) you know we're gonna have two plays happening at the same time on opposite sides of the stage and we're gonna have you know three storylines happening at once and because we can and um so yeah i think i've moved away a lot from in one space and mimicking the plays that i read when i was younger and so i think it's not so much working at the playoffs so much as finding my own voice and style Nice. I oh, mean, that's, that's probably great. a subconscious, probably a subconscious <laughs> influence. Yeah. Well, I was going to say you, you, you're around those things more, so now you're just they're automatically kind of like in your head. I think yeah. if you're only ever around, say, the upstairs space, you're going to continue to think in in proscenium. Well, so I mean, I've been doing theater since oh god for about what eighteen years now, so like almost half my life, so literally half my life. And so I've seen a lot of different kinds of theaters. Mm-hmm. Which is great. And not just the Playhouse. And so, and that is one thing I like about seeing theater is how different groups use space. And um, I remember when I was in community college and we had to see at least so many plays outside of class. That's how I found the Playhouse originally, actually. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, we went to this little theater in LA where they did to kill a mockingbird. And it was like this literally like 25, 30 seat theater. Stage was not big. And so they had to use the space in really cool ways. And so like the courtroom scene was almost was happening around you. Like the jury was behind you, and um, Atticus is on stage, and like the guy who stands up and yells is coming from the back of the house. And so, I mean, they had to use the space in really interesting ways. And I, I think that's why you should see as much theater as possible because, and all these different sizes of theater, because you can see different ways of using space. And, 
Right. Even the same show, like, you know, you could do a To Kill a Mockingbird in a 2000 seat house, or you can do it in yeah. a 20 seat, you know, and it's the same show. It's the same words on the page, but it's a completely different show. Experience. experience. Yeah. I've seen assassins that way. So I did assassins once in a like 400 seat house. It was kind of traditional. I know. I know. When Sean said and he was I, doing it, I was so excited. <laughs> but then I saw it in grad school in a like black box where it was kind of in the, I can't even say it was in the round, but there was like, we had a balcony section and then there were like the people behind us. So it was a little bit opposite of in the round where they were around us, um, oh, but the main people were here. Um, and then I saw the concert version of it at, it wasn't at Lincoln Center. I forget who did it a few years ago on Broadway, but it was a like a semi-stage concert, you know? And again, you're like in this huge Broadway house. There was some scenic pieces that came on and off, but it was like semi-stage concert. And it was just amazing to me how all three experiences were so vastly different and you got completely different relationships with people. Mm-hmm. Even though it's it's the same, it's the same songs, it's the same words that are there. But it's my favorite song on musical. I, right? It's freaking amazing. I love Completely it. Completely under underproduced. More people <laughs> should do it. So so I can go um, see it more. Well, when I was at Cerritos College, they did the Diary of Anne Frank. And the way they did it, it was in their black box. And so they de- they designed it to where the audience seating was around and then the attic space was right in the middle. So you're like looking down and watching it. And so there was a lot of thought of the idea of confinement and entrapment. Tra- and Stuck in that little area with them, nowhere to move to. Yeah, and then you get some people who have absolutely no idea how to use space at all. So, <laughs> yes, well, some people are special. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's still a learning experience. I, I yeah. always feel that I learn the most sometimes for um, from people that I don't want to be like, if that makes yeah. sense. You know, like, I don't look up to somebody. Well, I mean, I do. But there's people that I'm like, okay, I never want to do that. I never want to, you know, make that decision. And that's where I learn the most from. <laughs> yeah. You learn what's so possible true. and you learn what not to do. Yeah. So that, that works. <laughs> I do that all the time. Uh, during the pandemic, obviously, nobody's really doing much theater. Have you spent this time reading more and writing and kind of looking to, to work on those skills or doing anything uh, fun and exciting? Definitely been writing. Um, I've had school because I'm working on my Spanish certificate. Oh, nice. So I've been doing that. Um, Yeah, that's pretty much what I've been doing is reading, writing, schoolwork. Waiting for actual work to come back. Those are the best things to do right now. Housework and... Taking care of dogs. Yes, I have my (laughs) 14-year-old dog is snoring on my bed right now. (laughs) <laughs> mine's probably at home snoring on my bed too cindy yeah. you slack by not having a dog look i take care of my father-in-law's dog we went to the vet this morning okay. we went on a walk that's good it's good a job. lot of it's a lot of work taking care of that dog almost as much <laughs> as taking care of my father-in-law <laughs> uh, yeah. who called me seven times while i was at the vet with his dog to see where i was and i'm like still at the vet 
just asked me five minutes ago. <laughs> Poor <Aww>. Danny. <laughs> Dominic, is there any, uh, when you write, and we're getting close to the end of an hour. I know we could probably talk for more than one hour. When you write shows, how can people read them? How can people get them? If somebody wants to look at the show that you did uh, the last, uh, the one we were talking about earlier, is there, a, like, do they contact you? How do they get a script? How do they see where showings are happening? How? Oh, well, there's nothing happening right now. Um. <laughs> yeah. But in the future. And in, in, in the future, I really don't have that much out published. Um, I guess if they want to work with me, they can contact me. Um, uh, the showcase, there's a video of it. I think Rick Reichman has that, is involved, is in charge of that. Um, would you ever do a commission? Uh, sure. <laughs> I, I mean, I've never been asked. So if somebody asked and it was a interesting project, then yeah. Nice. So people could just get in contact with you. Because after talking to people about what they're doing, and then I'm like, how do I learn more? What if everyone else wants to learn more? Okay, great. I mean, you have a Facebook. I will tag you in. People can find you that way. <laughs> yes, like, I do have a Facebook. Excellent. More pictures of Zorro, the 14-year-old duck. That's there were lots favorite. of There were lots of pictures of your puppy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's some of my sister's dogs in there, too. And... Excellent. I always yeah, do like she's, them. She's the one that has the Great Danes. Those aren't mine. Ooh, big dogs. Yeah, she has two Molly and Snickers. Nice. See, if you have a puppy, I already like you. So yeah. I have to like twin, but she has an almost puppy. I have an almost puppy. <laughs> <laughs> the dog comes over enough, it might as well be my dog. She looks next door to you. It's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last question uh which i always say this because i never know if i tell people ahead of time do you have any fun twin stories they don't have to be theater related we just find them entertaining uh i don't know i don't i'm sorry no that's okay not everyone does i mean we do but we kind of you know our life so damn no fun <laughs> twin stories. <laughs> our life is just a fun twin story we should make that into a t-shirt I mean, it is, it is true. Yeah. It is kind of true. <laughs> we should just have that as a t-shirt. My I life is a twin story. story. <laughs> it's a funny twin story. No, guess... that would be, that would be an awesome book for us when we write our first book is my life as a twin story. <laughs> there we go. Perfect. We just talk to each other mostly. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, is there anything else you you got a web page anything you want to advertise I know it's the pandemic so nobody's got really any shows coming up or anything no, like that, that that's it. Yeah. I don't have a web page um, just, just the Facebook yeah Facebook that's how everyone finds anybody when, when we talk to people who don't have Facebook, I'm like, how am I supposed to stalk you and get pictures? How do I know how to spell your name? Come on, I need a Facebook. How am I supposed to find you? Yeah, exactly. You don't exist. <laughs> how many? We, we have had like two people that don't have Facebook. At least two people, yeah. It's very weird. Yeah. It's very weird stressful world. for Stacey. <laughs> 
It is. It's very true. Uh, well, I gotta, I gotta head back to work. I got sanding and bleaching wood to do. But uh, thanks so much for talking. I, like, I didn't. I knew you worked at the Playhouse and you did the backstage stuff like I did, but all the writing stuff. That's so cool. Definitely well, going to ask. Thank you. And it's been a lot of Rick. fun. Yeah. It's thanks. It's been so fun talking about theater and math with people. <laughs> and math. Without yes. scaring away people. <laughs> I know, right? It's excellent. No, we love math. Yeah, people always look like I'm about to give them a test when we're done talking, and so it's it's nice. <laughs> yeah, Larry and uh, Sean definitely have that look most of the time when I'm trying to explain some calculation about how we can find something, and they're like, "Nope," <laughs> I just I just kind of estimate. Okay, fine. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> draw a circle and cut it out. Exactly. That's the size of a paint can. That's the size of the trash can. That's uh, as long as the piece of wood I had. Yeah. <laughs> There's other ways to do it. It's great. <laughs> well, thank you so much. We appreciate you uh, being on the podcast yeah, and learning about yeah, writing. Yeah, a lot of fun. Thanks, Dominic. Yes. And I'm sure once great. the Playhouse well, opens up, I'll see you there again. Oh, Yeah. I'm starting to get withdrawals. Only now? Dang, you last a long time. I've I've been having withdrawals. Okay, (laughs) they're just getting more intense right now. Yeah, thank you. It's like it's so close. I can almost see it. It is. My last two weeks, I've been having a lot of meetings of like actual getting production stuff happening. I got a great meeting yesterday. We're like we're actually talking about contracts and like crew and stuff for the summer. It was. Like, this might actually possibly happen. It's very exciting. So, yeah, so I, think, I think that's what makes it worse is it's almost there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People are getting it's like shots. the last it. hour of a shift. It's like <laughs> <laughs> almost there. Yeah. That is true. Just hold on a little bit longer. We can make it, guys. We can get yeah. back to work. It'll be great. We can see theater again. We can be in a room with more than three people. Hopefully. That's, that's the goal. Yeah. <laughs> or outside with more than three people. You can actually touch people. Okay. Well, I don't well, know. I don't know about touching people yet, but okay, we might still. be able to perform. Oh. <laughs> okay. Touching fine. still might be off limits, but we could perform. <laughs> one step at a time. Yeah. Okay, one yeah. Step at a time. <laughs> Try not to jump too far. <laughs> well, thank you and uh yeah, have have a good rest of your day and see you around the okay. see you around some point. <laughs> All right, thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstocktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at Twinstock Theater. Title music, Dance Macop, is provided by Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.